Hello, uh, my name is Natasha Carrizosa. I'm a writer and poet. This poem is called Mehi Africana. Born with two tongues, I speak of, hablo de, I write of, escribo de, mi vida, cultura colorada, pintada, painted a picture para que puedan ver that I am Mehi Africana. That's half and half, but whole as in an entire empire of Aztec warriors breathe orange-red fire into my lungs. That's half and half, but whole as in an entire tribe from the Congo rained blue-black blood into my soul. I am that red-brown black sister thinking and breathing them poetic thoughts, that prolific prophetic poet with the red-brown twisted locks. I see and record the world in black ink like the skin of my people. I am fierce like panthers, notes with pen as they be, hot water, cornbread, oxtails, and collard greens, chanting down Babylon with jaw, rough safari beats. I am ghetto soliloquies of Haitian refugees spoken underneath Harlem's balconies. I represent the black freedom of which the Negro spiritual speaks. I am all things black and all black things are be. Yo soy la morena, la poema que despierte su mente, que enciende su alma con papel y pluma. I can make the sun and moon rise at the same time I am the viento que viene de México, el este y el oeste, este, es la verdad. I am the song con Pancho's lips to the Sitanis, un burrito de chorizo con huevo, praying for a job to feed his niños. I am salsa, que cosa, como Willy Colón, Frank Ruiz y Celia, una mariposa en May. And may I say that brown and proud is what I will remain, staining this life with my mark because you see my sico is just as bad as my bark. Because, por qué? I am una niña de Yucatan, Chicharitza, Quetzalcoatl kissed my mother, and here I am, landed on this land with pen in hand to tell the tales of me, Henry, Mayans, Aztecs, and Incans, roofers, day laborers, carbolo que sea, esa misma cosa, sangre. I am una niña de mi país, una de una raza tan fuerte, una niña de México, y así me quedo. Born with two tongues, I speak of Hablo de, I write of, escribo de, mi vida, cultura colorada, pintada. Painted a picture para que puedan ver that I am Mexicana. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You are tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is Tony Diaz. We've got a great episode with two fantastic writers, and we're going to feature poetry and prose. We'll be chatting with a friend of the show, Natalia Sylvester, who we've spoken to before. We've hung out with her at different conferences. We're celebrating her new book titled Running, and we're also celebrating... Rodrigo Bravo. You've heard Rodrigo co-host some episodes in the past. You've felt his touch on every show because he mixes us remotely. He loved that book so much that today we're happy to celebrate his first solo interview of an author. On the poetry side, 
we speak to a friend of the show who has performed with us in person and will join you on the airwaves. Her name is Natasha Garisosa. You heard her poem at the top of the show. We'll be featuring some of her work throughout with a full-length interview. She is the author of Mexi Africana, Heavy, Light, and Crown. Don't forget to check out our past episodes at NuestraPalabra.org or on any of our social media platforms. And keep an eye out for these writers' works and past writers who've appeared on our show whenever we showcase poetry, prose, and music from beginning to end on our NP All Lit episodes. I want to thank our crew for donating their cultural capital to bring this program to you. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, who is our summer intern through Rice University, Antonio Diaz, who is also our summer intern, Lauri Flores, Stefano Cavasa, and El Castillo, president of Lulet Council 60. The Nuestra Palabra radio show is archived at the University of Houston Digital Archives. Our hard copy archives are kept at the Houston Public Library Special Collections Hispanic Archives. I'm happy to join you every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. for Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say here on 90.1 FM KPFT. Also on Tuesdays, I host Latino Politics and News. I also get to see you on the political talk show, What's Your Point? on Fox 26 Houston. Thank you for tuning in. Let's talk art and culture. My name is Natalia Sylvester, and this is an excerpt from my young adult novel, Running. My father's campaign slogan is Rebuilding America. Before he initially announced his candidacy, my mother spent months trying to come up with it. She's written all his other campaign slogans, so it only made sense. But then my father insisted on hiring an ad agency. Sometimes he'd run their ideas by us. I was studying for midterms when he popped his head into my room and said, Integrity first. What do you think? And before I could answer, he shook his head and said, it doesn't say anything about my plans. We need to be less vague. Money was the one who suggested rebuilding America after he turned down countless others and spent thousands. The agency took the idea and ran with it. They created a logo with the America much bigger than the rebuilding, so it looks like one word is propping up the other. He showed it to me and my brother one night when he was actually home for dinner. What do you think, he said. Cool. It looks like Legos, Ricky said. It's very nice, but no work at the table, Manny said. Of course. And you know, it's just a rough concept, he said. But the agency did a great job. Then he kissed my mother on the forehead. What would I do without you? No tengo idea, Manny said, which is how she always responds when he asks. I like the slogan because it feels true to our roots. It reminds me of my great-grandfather, who died before my grandparents left Cuba, but who built the house my mother's father was born in with his own hands. When Abuelo arrived in Miami, he worked in construction for years until his back gave out. Then he went to trade school and became an electrician. He took pride in the kind of work that makes our country run, Papi always says. I first heard these stories in Papi's early speeches, but I know the details that no one else does. That Abuelo's electrician's toolkit 
a thick canvas bag made up of tightly packed compartments, used to be navy blue. It's now faded, and it sits by his television, the color of the sky. It's the size of a shoebox and heavier than a gallon of milk. I know every bank, strip mall, car dealership, and home Abuelo helped build in Miami, because he always points them out to me as we drive past. According to Papi, rebuilding America is both a vision and a plan. It's literal and figurative. It's about erecting buildings and bridges, roads and homes, and knowing that what makes them stand strong is the American spirit. I know that Abuelo's back has never stopped hurting him, even though he won't admit it. After Abuela died five years ago, he asked me to help him plant avocado trees in their garden in her memory. He took the seed from the last meal they shared, and with a couple of toothpicks, he submerged half of it in water until it sprouted. Months later, he dug a hole and planted it. Now there are three trees, each grown from the seed of the other. Abuelo speaks about them like they are a family. Abuela, mamá, hija. Rebuilding starts at home, at the dinner table, with the whole family. Once, mommy drove us to one of Papi's weekend rallies, and I asked him why he never talks about my abuelos on his side of the family during his campaign speeches, or at all, really. He said that just because he doesn't talk about his parents doesn't mean he doesn't think about them every day. He got quiet and started pinching his thumb like he was trying to make his fingerprint go away. I wondered if this was the end of the conversation, and then his phone rang. Trust me, mommy whispered. We were at a red light, and she caught my eye in the rearview mirror. What happened to your abuelo and tío abuelo in Fidel's prisons? Your papi's only heard stories, of course. Your grandmother was pregnant with him when she got here. But even so, it stays with a person. Sometimes the things you don't remember are the things everyone else tends to forget. Maybe he heard us. Maybe he'd kept thinking about his father the whole time he discussed whatever very important topic he was talking about with his staff. When he hung up, Papi started searching for something in the center console. Some stories you just don't pass down, he said, never looking up at me. It's not worth the pain, Ijita. Then he popped a mint in and began rehearsing his speech in the car. Our country has been hurting, and now we must heal together. Saludos, and thank you for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra Radio with Latina writers having their say with Tony Diaz. I'm Rodrigo Bravo, guest hosting. As you know, we're still remote broadcasting, but we're doing what we need to do to bring you Latina and Latino voices in the arts to you. I want to welcome to the show a longtime supporter and friend of the show, Natalia Sylvester. Born in Lima, Peru, Natalia came to the U.S. at the age of four and grew up in Florida and the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. She received a BA in creative writing from the University of Miami and now works as a freelance writer in Texas. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Bustle, Catapult, Electric Literature, Latina Magazine, McSweeney's Publishing, and the Austin American Statesman. Natalia's first novel, Chasing the Sun, was named the best debut book of 2014 by Latanidad. Her sophomore novel, Everyone Knows You Go Home, won an International Latino Book Award the 2018 Jesse H. Jones Award for Best Work of Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters, and was named a Best Book of 2018 by Real Simple Magazine. Natalia's debut young adult novel, Running, was released this month from Clarion Books, and uh, if I can say so myself, is a fantastic book about finding your voice, framed by an election and important issues. Natalia, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much, Rodrigo. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, definitely we're going to delve right into the book. It's a great book. Early on, you set the tone that Anthony Ruiz is symbolic of the Latin family, where a strong male dominates or is given the lead in a typical family, while a young lady has to play background. Early on, Mariana confronts this when she has to decide how to act based on what it means to him. How does this reflect on the traditional roles played within Latin families, and how is it changing? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. So, you know, I think that you kind of hit it on the nail. Or, wait, is that how you say that? You hit it on the nail? I'm yes. so bad at idioms. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I mean, it is very much um, the structure, right, where a young lady not only plays the background, but also the wife often plays the role of, a, of this rock, like a foundation. And she's there to support the husband. At least that's how I experienced a lot of families in, in my life growing up and how I would see the gender dynamics play out. And what always struck me about that is I, you know, I could see the sacrifices and the work going into both, both my parents, my grandparents, aunts and uncles. I could see their hard work. I could see the ways that oftentimes the men as head holders of the family we're working really hard and we're supporting like everyone in the family. But I also could see the way their partners and my aunts and grandmother and mom, they were just, they're doing just as much work. It just looked different. And because of that, to an outside gaze, there was often a lack of visibility, a lack of placing just as much value on their efforts, on their voices, on, their, on even just their sacrifices. And I really, like, I've always been interested in unveiling that and saying, no, this this isn't something, A, that should be accepted as a given. You know, it, it needs to be a choice. It shouldn't be taken for granted as in the way that, for example, in Mariana's family it is. Early on in the book, one of her father's assistants gives her a list of cue cards to read, and he does so just assuming that Mariana will faithfully agree with all of her father's policies. And it angers her so much to know that her support is just expected. I do think it's changing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel hopeful that it's changing. I remember even when I was young, it was changing. I have this whole um, journal entry from when I was in my teens talking about how angry it made me to see certain gender roles playing out um, and, and really wanting there to be more equality. And um, and even like today, I mean, we, you know, just yesterday we had um, this incredible speech of AOC, like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She said, my parents did not raise me to accept abuse from men. And for someone like her to say that, um, and in, to, in the platform from which she's saying it, as a Latina, it's just, I think it's incredibly powerful and it's, it, it has so much impact. It's showing how much it's changing um, constantly, and I'm very grateful for that. The example you just gave right now is excellent and really reflects the, the themes that are captured in this book, where our young lady, Mariana, does stand up for herself and does express herself and say, hey, I'm not going to take this. And so for you bringing, bringing that up right now with her statement, as far as the, the statements that were made by the other representative, it, it's, 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 it parallels. It's, it's a beautiful uh, example of what your book, uh, how your book resonates with even the current times that we're going through right now. Um, another portion of the book that I really liked that had commonality with the Latino community were the senator's positions. And you don't really reveal those until later on in the book. But they're actually very common within the Latino community. Cuban-Americans in particular have a different trajectory than other Latino groups in terms of immigration. You also touch on colorism and how it plays a role as well within the book. 
and you managed to define these issues great through Mariana's lens. How did you hope that they had played out for the readers themselves? It's important to us, as any you know, as as it is for any marginalized community, to see themselves reflected and represented in books. So for me, though, I think it's important that we that books help us look inward, not just at the things we're proud of, but not just as the things we're proud of in our culture, but also the things that we shouldn't be proud of, mm-hmm. and the things that we need to work on. I remember at one point when I was first writing this book, I was part of I was I was participating in various um, activist groups, and at one point somebody said to me, they were talking to me about another, like a Latinx legislator. And they expressed to me how surprised they were that this representative was a Republican. (laughs) And I just thought, we're not a monolith. You know, there's so much, there are so many different experiences and views and different levels of privilege. You know, our community, like any other, is incredibly rich and diverse. And I just, I wanted to really make sure that that came through in this book. Maddie's dad is a white Cuban-American conservative, and he's achieved much of his power and success precisely because of the privilege, his race, and the policies that he supports afford him. And so even if Maddie can't fully articulate that from the beginning, she does see the way that different members of her family who have different life experiences, she can kind of start to connect the ways that those things are influenced by things like their skin color, because Maddie herself is darker than her father. Um, and, and her mom is darker than she is. And so, and then there's ways that their particular immigration journey is different from other Latinx people who maybe came from a different country. There are ways that people within the Latinx community can be anti-Black, can um, be homophobic and and be machista, <laughs> machista. And it's important to me because we can't assume that just because we have experienced xenophobia and prejudice and racism and discrimination based on any number of our um, identities, that it it doesn't just absolve us of of perpetuating that same oppression on others. We are still capable of oppressing others, even when we have been oppressed. And it works on different levels. It works across, you know, there's so much that we, within our own community, across race across ethnicity and nationality. So this isn't, you know, when, when I address this in, in particular about my character, Anthony Ruiz, I don't, you know, it's not only Cubans, it's, you know, it's like all of us, really. Uh, we need to look inward and really see, like, where is this coming from and what can we do um, to, to dismantle it, to work, to fix it, to hold ourselves accountable for it. And it can be very complex like it works on different levels like for example there's a scene Maddie even though like her family being Cuban American had a somewhat easier path to immigration than for example um, a friend of hers who's Peruvian um, she also notes that her friend gets to go visit her family very often and, and and her friend is very connected to her Peruvian roots and Maddie has never experienced that because her family doesn't get to go and there's different kinds of privileges and, and the ways that we are allowed to go back to the places that we came from play out. My hope is that that came through, <laughs> um, not just to say, hey, we're not a monolith, but also to say, like, what are some of the ways that we can acknowledge our own privilege and um, make sure that we're not perpetuating harm to others who might have less privilege than we do. That's so well said. I I completely agree with that self-awareness of making sure that we check our own privilege and whatever that privilege may be, whether it's education, whether it's the color of our skin, whether it's where we come from 
and so forth. Our experiences don't necessarily define everything that we know. So I, I really appreciate you putting that into the book. The best disinfectant is sunlight. So when we bring things out to the open, that's when we mm-hmm. can really fix those those issues that uh, maybe are hampering us or, or limiting us from yeah. going forward. In that same vein, Mariana has a discovery process in your sophomore novel, Everyone Knows You Go Home. You tie in secrets of the unknown past of Martin, one of the protagonists, into the story. And Anthony mm-hmm. Ruiz is also discovered by his daughter. These trajectories, uh, they, they often lead to surprises and realizations that people that we love and admire may not be who we project them to be. Uh, what, what did this particular exploration for Mariana embody, and why was it important to emphasize in the book? It was born of, this, of just the reality that our parents are people. You know, when we grow up, we can often see them as almost like we put them on a pedestal or we can see them as superheroes and we see them as infallible, but they're human and so they can be flawed. I think in Mariana's case, it comes with this added baggage of her father's flaws are not just these simple flaws, right? They're not just these small vulnerabilities. Because he's someone with a lot of power, they can have huge ripple effects. And so on top of the power dynamics that she feels in her own family, as a daughter who feels the pressure to be a very good daughter, you know, calladita and obediente, (laughs) it's not just a simple matter of her disagreeing with him or talking back to him. It's really a matter of, oh my God, what will I do about it? So it goes from discovery to then action. And I think what it comes down to is just in discovering him and the way he's using his power, she then is also faced with discovering her own power and deciding if she'll embrace it. So I do think that like, you know, whether we have family members who are running for president or not, (laughs) um, it's something that I hope we can all relate to because we all each do have power and we all need to be constantly asking like, how will we use it? And, and if we don't use it, then who is that serving? One of the things that I hope that I wanted to explore was also her if she chose inaction, what would that mean? Because doing nothing is actually is not doing nothing. It still creates effects. When you do choose inaction, that is picking a side. And in fact, I think that's one of the quotes from oh, the yeah. book. Yeah, Amaris tells her, Amaris. Nena, sometimes you have to pick a side. When you really, you really captured that moment where she does have to make a choice, reading that particular passage to me was pretty powerful because mm-hmm. I remember a, a part of my growing up when I was confronted with an issue that really kind of blew my mind and I had to make a choice as well. And so that resonated. And, and that also shows mm-hmm. that, like you said, we do have power. It, it may not yeah. be presidential power. It may not be congressional power. It may not even be local power, but we have power mm-hmm. within our own sphere of influence. And yeah. we can do something about that. Absolutely. Um, you read a small excerpt from Running and you chose chapter six, which discusses uh, Anthony Ruiz's slogan, uh, I love that chapter to, because to me, it kind of really demonstrated the machinations of sound bites and panel approved details and how Mariana discovers some of the hollowness, the vagueness of the slogan. Uh, it kind of reminds me of a current slogan that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, goes around. What were you trying to capture with that and making sure that Mariana understood how empty it was? It was important to me to show that, you know, these are things she's heard all her life. And you're right, they're vague. And for a long time, she kind of let the vagueness slip past without questioning it. But she's in a moment now where she's looking past the vagueness to the specificity and realizing that it doesn't quite match up with the realities she knows. 
And she's kind of seeing the hypocrisy in that. And I think that's something that if we all listen hard enough to the ways that promises are made and the ways that certain talking points are discussed, especially in the climate we're in, there's so much untruth underneath them, you know, and there's so much vagueness that obscures the reality. And it's really sometimes purposely designed to be like, well, how can you not support this one very idealistic thing? Um, or supposedly, you know, that it sounds like anybody can say, yeah, I, you know, all families deserve happiness or something, you know. But then when you look at the real policy that that is being made to support, um, you can see that in practice it's not. And so it was important for me that she sees that and she can see it at a very personal level of how it's not only reflecting at a policy level, but even just within her own family because policy is personal. And also just to show that her father is not this one thing that defines her. Her family itself is full of rich history and experiences. And her choosing to see them and, and, and voice them, I think, is powerful. And it's, it's her way of saying, no, I won't let this be ignored. Just because we come from the same roots and, I, and that she can acknowledge the pain that maybe her father has experienced, it doesn't give him a path to then perpetuate that same pain or even pain in other forms to others. Right. When I wrote that, I was like, I was proud of her for seeing that because I think that when we look at someone whose policies don't agree with ours, we're rightfully angry when they harm and oppress others. I think it's equally powerful to want to know, like, well, where is it coming from? Because if you know where it's coming from, then you can then hold to account where they're going with it. Mm. I, I love that. When you really look at the root cause and bring it out to the sunlight, then you can really fix it. And you have to be open to that as well. And, and uh, mm-hmm. that, that was another theme that I liked. It took her a minute, but Mariana finally opened herself up to other viewpoints. And she finally was able to really kind of coalesce with some of the other women, or I'm sorry, in this case, young ladies working together. Mariana's relationship with Jackie, it changes, but it's somewhat reflective of the role women often have to choose in battling someone instead of siding with them, or at the very least, uh, hearing them out. Uh, it's also displayed with Amaris and Gloria's relationship, where working together means putting up with some of the views from others for the sake of the plan. I appreciate the way you were able to weave women working together to really unify and bring those voices together. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. The, the relationships you just pointed out, like with Jackie and Gloria and Amaris, for me, they were the ones that I would say I, I just loved writing them so much. And they really brought me a lot of joy because they're all people who are full of love for their causes and full of joy. And I think especially as women and especially women of color, we often get labeled as angry when we are advocating for our own communities or we're advocating calling out injustice. And it doesn't make sense to me because I think that to put so much on the line for justice and for the betterment of others is one of the kindest things and most loving things we can do. So it was important for me to frame them around that, around that community, about around them coming together instead of having to work against each other, even though there are outside forces that would rather pit them against one another, right? Because from the very beginning, like Anthony labels Jackie as like, who's just always up to trouble, right? <laughs> and it's because she's an activist and she's working to create change and that change doesn't benefit him, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it just... Um, but yeah, I, I did. I loved writing them. So I appreciate you saying that. 
Yeah, when he when he said malcreada, I could definitely hear my dad saying that about <laughs> back when I was going to the University of Houston. It was uh, he was like, why why are you getting involved with that? You know, don't. <laughs> It works so well because it seems like you own this story. I almost I don't want to say that you know they were based off real life experiences or they weren't, but I know that they come from your your experiences and your frame of your lens, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, so this, this kind of ties into the Dignidad Literaria movement that sprang up in the beginning of 2020, and it pushes this and it's, and you've demonstrated why this is so critical. What piece in particular from the book? can you say definitively could not have been written by someone else outside of the culture or without at least understanding and portraying the authenticity needed? The interactions with Abuelo, they are so real for me. I can see those moments in my head like I was back in Guanajuato in the <laughs> 1990s talking to my abuela and the same way that Mariana was speaking to her abuelo. Mm, I love that. Um, I love that question and I love that you um, connected to Abuelo in that way. Even before I, I answer that, I, I should say to you that, like, you know, I was born, like, as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I was born in Peru. I'm not Cuban. and um, But I grew up in Miami and then the Rio Grande Valley. And so much of my family, friends, and community um, throughout my life have been Cuban, um, Mexican, as you know, which reflects the family in my last book, Everyone Is You Know Home. And where I, I wrote each of those books from this place of knowing that as a Latinx community, we share a lot in common, but we also have a lot of places and experiences that don't intersect. And it's, it's equally important to be able to know and appreciate both of the things that the ways in which our experience overlap and, what, and the ways in which they don't. So when I think of authenticity in writing Latinx stories, I, I think of the importance of knowing each other and understanding and celebrating and listening to each other, but also honoring the ways that we're different, right? So I, I don't think I would have written like, either one of these books, like I wouldn't have written everyone else at home and I wouldn't have been running if I felt that I needed to quote unquote research the culture that I was writing about mm-hmm. through books or TV or media or whatever, rather than just through the lived and shared experiences of having been part of the communities that I'm part of and having the family that I have and loved ones and friends. I think that there is no such thing as a culture that you research and then just choose to close and tuck away after a book is written. What, when we encounter books like that, that are that, that feel like they don't have that authenticity, it's because someone will try to defend it by saying, but I did my research. And I, I, can, I turn around and be like, research, you can do one or two years. You can put somebody under a lens. We don't put our communities under a lens. We just share with them. Mm. We live alongside them. We listen to one another. We experience joy and pain together. To answer my long-winded way of answering your question, though, is that we're not research subjects. Like, we're family, we're friends, we're loved ones, and that's where I hope to write from. I love that you brought up Abuelo because I do think, I mean, he's a really good example of where that comes from, that, that authenticity, where it can lead you to. Because I see him as such an important, even though he's not, like, a central, like, he's not, a, like, a major character, but I do see him as being central to the story. And he's someone who was inspired by my own grandfather, who's Peruvian and my cousin's grandfather, who's Cuban. And while they have very different immigration stories and obviously different life experiences, they both remind me of the ways that we carry our roots and how everything, all the history that they carry and all the joy and both the pain and the triumph and everything that our ancestors experienced and then hope to pass along to us. 
those are things that stay with us and they navigate the, they affect how we navigate the world. And there's such a tenderness to that. And it's, it's really what I hope to, to highlight in, in, in Abuelo's story is that it, the importance of that tenderness and throughout all the, the different things we might experience that can threaten to harden us. Like we know at the heart, there's this really deeply rooted love that can carry us through it all. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's what a grandfather or grandparent does. Uh, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I definitely see my abuela the same way that you saw your abuelo and, and that kind of love and those interactions that you had in the book. They, they Yeah, I definitely felt that. Uh, we, we really kind of poured through the book and, and really hit some key points in the book. But I also wanted to talk about the development of the book itself. Uh, you shared some of the creative trajectory of the book. And in fact, uh, one of the Instagram posts you had, you mentioned how you struggled after the actual 2016 election in writing the book. But then after attending a workshop and, oh, my God, for the life of me, I cannot remember the lady's name. Or, or... Christina Garcia. Yes. And, and yeah. so you attended her workshop and the novel developed rapidly. And, mm-hmm. and the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is because I, lo- I love for you to go over the, uh, that with the audience so that they understand that it's not just writing books and you just writing and writing. It comes out naturally sometimes. Sometimes it could be difficult. But uh, oh, yeah. can, can you go over that process a little bit and, sh- and tell us how it led to that point and then how attending that workshop really helped you with the book? Yeah, I think, you know, I wrote the first 30 or so pages of running um, within like a month and it was in. July of 2016 and I went to Christina Garcia's workshop in August 2017 so it's like a year and a month (laughs) in which I was really struggling and I don't think I added more than like 10 pages to this manuscript during that time Um, because it's one thing to start a book before the election um, full of hope and envisioning a world in which things are very different than what they are and then it's another to be writing it after the inauguration And I struggled a lot with that of like, where do I find that hope? And I, I, for me, for a really long time, I was just trying to do what I could at, at a, like a local level to be part of different groups and different demonstrations and protests. And it's not to say that I no longer do that, but it's just that I actually in the beginning hadn't found a way to balance it and make it sustainable for myself um, because I was just so overwhelmed and just being like, I have to do everything I can do or else I will feel powerless. So that's how in the beginning, I really just stopped writing. When I found my way to this workshop, it was really incredible because Christina Garcia is a Cuban-American writer who, like her first book in 1992 was called Dreaming a Cuban. And for me in particular, it was a very life-changing book. Like I've often cited that as the book that made me decide I wanted to write fiction. So to study under her was just really incredible. And I should say the workshop ended up being like mostly like people of color who had created this really space for us all to just discuss things like uh, like where we were in our creative process within um, this cultural moment and within the administration, worrying about all the different policies that were affecting ourselves and our communities. The very first day of workshop, or maybe it was the second, but I forget, very early on, um, Christina Garcia had us do this one exercise. And it was simply, um, she asked us to write the oppressors of our story, write from their point of view or write about them basically just name them. And there was something so incredible about the act of stepping back from my manuscript and actually just naming the power structures that exist within them. That really just opened up the whole story for me because it was a way of not allowing them to remain invisible. 
you can't dismantle something until you've named it, until you've made it visible and, 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 and held it to account. And so for me to even do that within my story, which is so much a part of my journey, <laughs> like that <laughs> process, it brought the purpose back to the story and it brought the inspiration back to it. And it helped me really just to keep going with it. Wow. That, that's that's amazing. I, I'm really I'm really happy to hear that. Go, going to a workshop and being open minded enough to say, you know what, I need you know help with my story. I need a how, how do I progress from here? And then going to a workshop and then finding that that moment and it just opens up for you. That that is that is really great. Um, Thank you, Natalia. I, I've it's been a pleasure. I want to make sure that we get the, your your social media out there. Could you tell everybody where they can find you on all the social network channels? Yeah, um, so um, on Twitter and Instagram, my handle is Natalia Silv, which is N-A-T-A-L-I-A-S-Y-L-V. And um, my website is simply nataliasilvestre.com. And I do, on my website, I have a list of all the events that I'm doing uh, coming up. And, you know, they are all virtual and mostly free. So if anybody's interested in attending them, you can find links to, to register for free on, online. I really appreciate the interview, the opportunity to discuss your new book, Running. Running did come out on July 14th and is available at bookstores everywhere. Natalia, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for dropping by the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great talking to you, My name is Natasha Karazos, and this is a fairly new poem. It's called Red Dirt Ancient, or Drumming in Her Chest. I see myself ancient, a midnight cave carving stone from sanguine bird, gunpowder, sound, chiseled, flood, stone, sand for cheekbones, muddy is my nose grindstone spirit dancing two braids ivy song two speaking tongues two screaming waves within me a message a wall a papyrus beyond tomb building bricks that crave climb water como comal sun oshun i am a redskin gal i am no chief I am the ground. I am beyond time. There is red dirt. No Samira tree bark in my mouth. No, my heart crown swallows river. One pearl drop lands. One grain sand hands. I am sure. I belong to wave. I cannot be cut. I am time. I am a redskin gal. I am beyond a bebe fan. My palms, psalms, trees, spirit, undefeated, undefined. I am Ivei, fire, jango, water, twin. I am always mother, wombing. I am heart, humming, bird beating. I am returning to carving, to beginning, ancient drumming in her chest, ancient drumming in my chest, ancient drumming in 
my blood. I am a redskin gal. You're tuning into Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is Tony Diaz, and today we're joined by a friend of Nuestra Palabra, a fantastic poet, and someone who keeps giving back to the community. First, let's say hi to our dear friend, Natasha. Hey, thank you for calling in and sharing your poems at the top of the show. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. I'm really enjoying it. That's wonderful, because I know right now, as people are driving or tuning in from home, they are feeling great because you're bringing some joy to them through your work and i want to let them know that you are a poet writer and speaker and natasha carizosa's work is deeply rooted in her childhood and life experiences raised as the daughter of a fierce african-american mother and a mexican father her writing reflects the dichotomy of these two rich cultures, which you got some wonderful doses of in the poems you've shared up to now. You're the author of Mexi Africana, Heavy, Light, and Crown. Your work's recently been published in Manteca, an anthology of Afro-Latino poets, and R2, the Rice Review from Rice University. She's performed her work and conducted workshops for audiences in Madrid, Paris, St. Lucia, New York, Chicago, Houston, and countless other cities. I feel bad for you if you had a chance to see her throw down live and in person. <laughs> 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 and it's great to get to chat, even if it's remotely. So uh, once again, welcome welcome to Familia. Nuestra palabra. Yes, thank you. Being near family is always good. And you know what I love? Only this show is going to talk about your work the way we're about to talk about it, okay? <laughs> and I, I want every show on earth to interview you también, but I hope they understand that you have coined a new phrase in un ambiente that also is now thinking about the Afro-Latino experience just a little more. Mm-hmm. But I would also argue that nothing explains the definition of what the Afro-Latino experience means or what Mexi Africana means except your poetry. And yes, of course, it's got to be written down and it should be in a dictionary entry. What does that word mean to you? I can take credit for the poem, but I can't take all the credit for the, uh, the word. Puerto Rican writer a long time ago said, I ne- I'd never met a Mexi Africana before. And when he said that, I was like, that's what I am. <laughs> because uh, up until that point, for me, that word means everything that is in my blood. It is poetry, music, dance, good food, spirit. I don't even know if I, I tried my best to describe it in a poem, but it is me. And what I love too is that you bring those different visions, cariño, facts, and you play so much with color and food in your poems. And what I want people to appreciate, too, is on the intellectual side, there's still debate on what this terrain means because we've used the word Afro-Latino right now. You've got mm-hmm. black brown unity. You, I've heard the term blacks again. I think right now, post-George Floyd era, when we're trying to dismantle structures of racism, it yeah. seems that there's a little more attention to this field 
And I guess what I want to argue is that you're ahead of all that with your emotional breakdown of what the word means because there's so much cariño coming through that. Like, I'm going to give you one word. When you use the word comal in one of your poems, forget it. I lost it. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I feel bad for the people that aren't vibing at that level, but there's so much in your poems that they can vibe with. What does the comal mean to you? And why is it triggering me so much in a wonderful way? <laughs> Are you um, smelling tortillas? Nice. Comal for me is, is like my grandmother. It is uh, cooking in the dirt. It is burnt fingertips and all of these wonderful, wonderful smells and memories of uh, communing and community with my family and extended family. Now I'm starting to get hungry, Tony. I'm thinking about the comal too. <laughs> And it says all remote, unfortunately, and during the COVID lockdown. So we can't be having this chat at a great restaurant or at one of our houses <laughs> enjoying some of this food. But on that note, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, too. Uh, tell us about the first time you remember coming to poetry. Like the very first time? I'm, I'm going very, very to let you pick. So, oh, you set me up good, Tony. You set me up good. <laughs> Well, you, you, threw, well, you threw me back with the Quran, <laughs> so I had, to, I had to do you the favor, too. <laughs> well, thank you, Tony. Um, the very first time, I remember it vividly. I was in the fifth grade, and there was a little girl who did not look like me, um, but she was my friend. And she wrote a limerick that I still remember to this day. And I said to myself, I want to do that. You know, if she can do it, I can do it. And I wrote this poem about friends because I really didn't have very many, being both black and brown and where I grew up. I ran home, took it to my mom and said, Mom, I wrote a poem. And she said, your father writes poems. And I said, Daddy writes poems? Daddy is a roofer. Daddy can barely speak English. Daddy writes poems? And then she said, no. Your real father writes poems. That was a plot twist. People always ask when I tell that story, wait a minute, is your dad Mexican? Yes. Is the man that raised you, the one you call daddy, is he Mexican? Yes. Yep. That's potent. And thank you for sharing a narrative poem on on the spot because that's beautiful and also speaks to the the power of of the written word that you're remembering this this from fifth grade between ten and eleven. Yeah. Oh, that's that was the beginning for me. Now, t- tell us about where you grew up because you're in Houston now. You live in Houston now, so I'm glad we we're able to lure you from wherever you were before. <laughs> but as you tell us that story, what's what city or town were you in when you were that age? I was uh, born and raised in a very far away place called Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> yeah, I moved here probably about uh, well, well, maybe six years ago, and I love it. I love Houston. Um, but yeah, I was born and raised in Fort Worth. Black mother, Mexican father, and four brothers. Only you know, only girl in my household. And I think what's interesting, and for, for me. I always thought of the urban experience as a black-brown experience. I grew up in Chicago originally, and, of course, Houston ha- has that aspect as well. 
I think I took for granted that people understood all these different cultures. Right. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, yes. No. The first the first time I went to New York, I was on the uh, subway and I was just in awe. There's a lot of people here and they come from different places and they have different skin colors and they're speaking different languages. And uh, it was a, a mind-blowing experience because that wasn't my experience growing up where you know I grew up. And I, I love, though, the way you interweave Spanish, Spanglish, and English. Is that something you've come to navigate later as a poet, or were you navigating that ever since you were a kid? It was like that growing up in my house, you know, the English and the Spanish. And, but when I started like writing and trying to explore who I really am, it just came out that way. Like, uh, like you mentioned the comal, and I wrote como, and I played with homonyms and sounds. So it was like como, and then comal came to my mind. Whatever comes from my heart, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It just comes out. Like that's how my mind works. Well, and I think, I think we see it in the poetry. So, for example, you've got a lot of beautiful imagery, but you also do play a lot with, with color. Is that consciously, or is that how your mind sees, or do you go back and put it in? Um, my process, my writing process, is I listen to music when I write. And some people say, how do you do that? Like, I listen to the same song on repeat, and even if it has lyrics, they disappear at some point, and I just sit there and have this experience, and I usually don't get up until I'm finished. And I love sound color, smells. Well, thank you for the compliment. I should have said that first. Uh, this is kind of good and strange for me because you are really, really asking me some great questions. I've never been asked the questions that you were asking me. Thank you. <laughs> well, you just made my day. So <laughs> I also think that it is because we're in a moment that what we're talking about has, has come to the forefront because... Let, let's be real. Typically, the mainstream society is like, yo, pick your lane. I can, I can just deal, right. I can just deal with one of y'all at a time. <laughs> right. And perhaps we as artists have been in there, and culturally we're, we've been there, but if we're going to delve in, some of our communities hidden it, some of it's ignoring it, some of it's resisted it, and some of it hasn't been exposed to it. I think now is the time where more people will be appreciating that and you were navigating this terrain from before. I, I'm optimistic. Do, do you think it is time for the Mexi Africana experience? People are more open now or searching for something um, and maybe they don't even know what they're searching for but I do feel like they are opening doors to understand and have conversations and explore and appreciate. I definitely see in my own life in the last few months that like poems or things that I've shared before, uh, maybe not get as much attention. I wrote something not too long ago called uh, Black Irony. And it was with everything, the Black Lives Matter and just who I am as a black woman then I decided to record and I threw it up on Facebook and man, it, it uh, went everywhere and it scared me. I have to be honest and tell you that it scared me because I was not used to 
that attention or people asking me questions about my experience. I think people are, I hope and pray that they are more, more open to us and our stories. Well, and, and I also think that's what's great about your poetry is that you present it in such a way then that people will be engaged because you give them something concrete they can deal with, but then you push their experience a little more. And I think you do it in such a way that even if they're lost, they may not know what a word or two means, but they're willing to go along because it's a poem, it's engaging, and there's a rhythm to it. So I think your work will prepare them for the more complex work of breaking down, well, okay, exactly what the history of this is and, and so forth. Right. So let's talk about your poem because the poem does that. 1360 block of lulling. And I'm saying the name wrong because I'm from Houston. Not <laughs> Give that street a shout out again. <laughs> yeah, the 3600 block of willing. I wrote that, um, I don't even know how long ago it was, but it was, I was, I'm sure, thinking about my family. Uh, the, it was a little white house. The address was actually 3636 willing. And when I go to Fort Worth, I pass by just to remember and see who's living there now. Um, but it was a happy time for me with my mom, my dad, my mom always cooking uh, in the kitchen. When my grandma comes from Mexico, she would say to my mom that you cook, as a black woman, she cooks Mexican food better than a Mexican woman. Nice. Like, just <laughs> delicious food. So I just kind of like wanted to honor that time in my life and my mother. Well, I tell you what, been great chatting with you. Can you close us out with one more poem? Oh, Tony, I'm going <laughs> to read one from the book. Let me see what I got here. <laughs> well, thank you, Nuestra uh, Palabra, and thank you so much again, Tony, for having me. I am going to read one, two, three. And I like to read it to young people, um, but I, it's for everybody. Words sound power. One, breathe. When the world takes your breath away, when life beats you down, when you wake up in the middle of the night full of worry and what about, when fear whispers in your ear and fills your head with doubt, when you wake up in the morning and can't see the light of day, when you collect pennies and nickels and dimes and hope this will be the last time you swallow your pride. When you hide your face and stifle the tremble in your throat, when your lifeboat feels like it's sinking and you can't stop thinking about the flood at your feet, when the flood fills your eyes to the point that you cannot see, when one more minute feels like an impossibility, when one more second of suffering feels like an eternity, close your eyes one more time, open your mouth one more time, and breathe. Two. Be yourself. They are the pretty people. They got money. They skinny. They really smart. They going to college. They got jobs. Better clothes, better shoes, better everything than me. Only if I was like them and nothing like me. They got a house, somewhere to stay, money in the bank, food in the fridge, and in the freezer. They got clean walls. They got everything they want. I got nothing I need. Nothing at all. I ain't nothing at all. They got it all. I wish I was like them. They're strong. Never fall. I'm weak. They're not like me. No one is made like you. You are one of a kind. 
something like a snowflake made when the winter comes and the ground is cold, something like a dream, like a song, like a light, something so most high, most everybody cannot see, so blessing, so everything, like no one else. Be who you are, not who you could be, be yourself. Three, tell the truth. When you talk to the wind, when you talk to them, when you pray, write a poem, sing your song, tell your story, when you testify, when you take a stand and wonder what the world is coming to, one, breathe, two, be yourself, three, tell the truth, and the world will come to you. Thank you, Melissa Palabra. We've been enjoying the work of Natasha Carisosa, the author of Mexi Africana, Heavy, Light, and Crown. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Cantamos bien borrachos, que bailamos bien borrachos, nos besamos bien borrachos los dos. Y yo pensaba que tu nombre estaba muerto, eh, pero te soñé despierto. Ey, hoy salí pa' la calle suelto Sin sentimiento, el corazón desierto Y yo pensaba que tu nombre estaba muerto Pero te soñé despierto Hoy salí pa' la calle suelto Sin sentimiento, el corazón desierto 